Professor Samuel Hyman holds the Harold Proshansky Chair in Jewish Studies at the Graduate Center and is Distinguished Professor of Sociology at Queens College of the City of, of the City University of New York. Anybody Queens College graduate here? City College? Brooklyn College? Okay. Anybody here from New York originally? Okay. Murray, you're from Brownsville. That last time I checked, it was part of New York. Maybe not when you lived there. I think later on in history, they took Brooklyn and made it part of New York City. In 2007 to 2008, he was a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Jerusalem. Now, this Fulbright stuff is very confusing to me. I'm going to mention it, but it's... I'm going to mention it because it's very interesting. He was selected as a Fulbright senior specialist and sent to the People's Republic of China, where he lectured at Nanjing, Henan, and Shanghai Universities. More recently, uh, Professor Heilman completed another Fulbright at the University of Vratislav, Warsaw, and Jagiellonian University in Krakow, Poland. He has also been the Scheinbrunn Visiting Professor of Sociology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Visiting Professor of Social Anthropology at Tel Aviv University, and a Fulbright, Fulbright Visiting Professor at the University of New South Wales and Melbourne in Australia. He's the author of numerous articles and reviews, as well as 13 books. Most recently, he has written Who Will Lead Us? The Story of Five Hasidic Dynasties in America, topic for today, and co-authored uh, a co-author of Hasidism, A New History. He's also editor of Death, Bereavement, and Mourning. When it comes to understanding um, Hasidim in America and uh, Haredim in America and uh, fundamentalist Judaism in America, there's probably no more important Jewish writer, a thinker, and author than Professor Samuel Hyman. Please join me in welcoming Professor Hyman to Orange County, California. I'll leave us here. Thank you very much, Ari. I'm really pleased to be here in Orange County for the first time. And uh, it is a beautiful place. And you've provided very nice weather. I had to take my ski jacket that I wore in New York and put it away uh, in my uh, suitcase for the duration of my stay here. So um, I've been asked to talk a little bit about this book. And uh, it's going to be a real challenge to talk about all the things that have to do with Hasidism, the problem of succession, the role of the Rebbe, all of that. Uh, but the good news is that whatever I don't manage to talk about is in this book. <laughs> and so um, you'll have an opportunity, I hope, to fill in the blanks uh, that perhaps will be left at the end of my talk. And I'll try to leave a little time for uh, questions and answers uh, at the end of the talk. Let me just talk briefly about really what is at the heart of not only this book, but the heart of Hasidism, and that's the role of the Rebbe. The Rebbe or the, the, the Hasidic master. Uh, originally, they were called the Tzaddik. Now, who is a Tzaddik? What is a Tzaddik? I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the movement that we call Hasidism. In fact, there's a, a new book that's out of which I am one of uh, eight co-authors called uh, A New History of Hasidism. And it's from Soup to Nuts. It's another book. It's one of those door stoppers, meaning you can't put it down because you can't lift it up. It's, a, you know, <clears throat> it's a, about five, uh, five and a half pounds of, uh, of the history of Hasidism from its beginnings in the 18th century in Eastern Europe, what we today call Eastern Europe, uh, to this very day. Hasidism is one of those movements that really transformed Jewish life, not only 
in Europe, but throughout the world. And although many people thought that it was just going to be a flash in the pan and people fought against it, uh, the fact of the matter is that all the many movements that came after Hasidism, we're not sure they're going to survive. But I don't think today there's anybody who doubts that many of the Hasidic groups with which we're familiar, whether it's Lubavitch or Satmar or Bobov, are going to be around for the foreseeable future. And how is that possible? Who are these people? What is a Rebbe? So at the heart of this concept of the Rebbe is a leader, a man. It's always a man, although, as I'll try to make clear in a few minutes, the role of the Rebetzin, his wife or his mother, is not to be denied. It's very powerful as well. A man who his followers, and followers, the followers are called Hasidim, believe is an intermediary between them and God. Somebody, the Rebbe or the Tzaddik, that outstanding, charismatic individuals, speaks to God, and the Hasidim speak to the Rebbe, and the encounter with God, which is a very complicated encounter, as anyone who's tried to live a spiritual life knows, can't be accomplished directly. And so it became the role of the Tzaddik, the Rebbe, to be that intermediary between the simple chassid through a process of cleaving to the Rebbe, what they call dveikut, that if you have a strong relationship to the Rebbe, then the Rebbe can act for you as the conduit to having a strong relationship with God. And Rebbes were mystics, but they were not the kinds of mystics that we normally think about, the mystics who are not in the world, the mystics who withdraw, who are sort of solitary, monk-like. These people were mystics who were in the world. That is, the idea of Hasidism is you can encounter God in the world. It doesn't require of you somehow to withdraw from everyday life. That in fact, many of the aspects of everyday life can be endowed with spiritual and mystical meaning above and beyond anything that you can imagine. Now this was, in the beginnings, a kind of folk movement because people believed that in order to really be a good and engaged Jew, that you had to be engaged in Torah learning, that scholarship, Torah, Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam, as it says in the Talmud, that the study of Torah is more important than anything else. And that the only way to really encounter God was by studying his Torah. What Hasidism came along to say is no. You encounter God directly through prayer. You encounter God directly through joy. You encounter God in all kinds of ways. But most importantly, you encounter God through the model. And that model is the tzaddik or the rebbe. He became a kind of larger-than-life figure. Now, in the beginning, Hasidism didn't think of itself as a movement. The first, the precursors to Hasidism, were the so-called Baalei Shem. Baalei Shem, the most famous of which you probably have heard of, Israel Ben Eliezer, or known as the Baal Shem Tov, or the best for short. And what was the Baal Shem Tov? The Baal Shem Tov was really a man who knew 
sort of the secret names of God, who knew these mystical kinds of things, who was a healer. In fact, the only really written evidence that we have of uh, the Baal Shem, and this is in our book on Hasidism, is that he had a place in the village of Mezbush, and he's listed in the town census as Dr. Baal Shem. Uh, and, and the truth of the matter was that in those days, the state of medicine was such that you were better off going to a Baal Shem than you were to a doctor. <laughs> the doctor was likely to kill you with all of the things that they were doing from bleeding people and the kinds of remedies that they had. And the Baal Shem was able to act as an intermediary by giving you an amulet, by telling you certain exercises, spiritual exercises to do and so on. So... The Baal Shem really sort of evolved into Hasidic tzaddikim, or rebbes. They are these mystics active in the world. And the relationship between the Rebbe and his Hasid was such that the Rebbe was responsible for three things for his Hasidim. Those three things are sometimes called Chaye, Bane, Umezone, which means their lives, namely their health. They would go to the Rebbe and ask, we need blessings for our health. We need you to ask God for our health. Bone, we need children. We need you to pray. And we know when you read in the Torah portion, as we're reading now, uh, our forefathers, they always seem to have problems with children, except for the last one who had too many. <laughs> So the idea of coming to the Rebbe to ask not only for your health and your welfare, but for children, and then Mazone, I need, I need to be able to make a par parnasa, I need to be able to have food. And in return for that, for the Rebbe taking that concern for his followers, uh, for their material and spiritual well-being, they also took care of the Rebbe. So the Rebbe was this kind of person who lived for his followers and lived off his followers. He became what we call in sociology and anthropology a collective representation. That is, the Rebbe was a model. He was a kind of icon of, all, of, of his followers. A Rebbe who had many followers became, of course, more important. A Rebbe who had fewer followers became less important. And the Rebbe's moved throughout Eastern Europe. They really, they branched off from this first uh, series of the, the earliest uh, Rebbe's or Tzadikim. And as they moved throughout Eastern Europe in the Pale of Settlement, they established followings in all of these towns. And the movement grew really by leaps and bounds. When they came to a place where they would establish themselves, they might establish a court there. What do I mean they establish a court there? They move to a particular place and their Hasidim would come to them, first of all, for those blessings, for that relationship, and also to be in their company. It wasn't just that the Hasidim wanted to be near the Rebbe. The Hasidim wanted to be near the other Hasidim. And often they would leave their families, and certainly it was important at times of uh, the year on holidays. And at times, certainly uh, on the Sabbath, the Rebbe would have what is called a tish, uh, a gathering, what, what we would call a Friday night dinner. 
And at that dinner, the Hasidim came to him, and it was important for them to be in his presence, to break bread with him, to sing songs with him. That whole uh, spirit of being together, the kind of solidarity of believers and looking at the Rebbe and seeing the Rebbe, just having that direct relationship with the Rebbe. Even today, if you go to a Tish of a Rebbe, I don't know how many of you have ever done that, but you could. It's easier for the men than for the women, but it is possible. You will see that when the Rebbe comes in, it's like the parting of the sea. As the Rebbe walks into the room, all eyes are on the Rebbe. And when he sits at the table and he will hold up his cup or he will, he will uh, sort of make this motion of shaking the hand and look at people directly in the eye. And, and the, the encounter with the Rebbe is viewed by the Chassid as something extraordinary. It's something that they prepare for spiritually in a whole variety of ways. These Rebbes... Of course, when they first began to emerge, no one thought about anything happening to them. And in the beginning, there wasn't any idea about, well, what happens when he dies? Because no one thought about him dying. Because such an an extraordinary figure, you don't think about his demise, you think about the powers that he has. But of course, Rebbes were human beings and they did die. Now in the beginning, the question of succession didn't really arise. Who would be next? Because when the Rebbe died, then the Hasidim would look for someone else. So for example, there are many famous Rebbes, some of whom I'm sure you've heard names, like Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, perhaps you've heard, but there are no Berdichev or Hasidim. When Rabbi Levi Yitzchak died, his Hasidim sort of broke apart and went elsewhere. But it happened after a time that the Hasidim who were so fond of being together, who felt this solidarity among the followers, they were Hasidim, they weren't just Hasidim, they were Hasidim of a particular Rebbe, Hasidim of a particular Tzaddik. And they weren't ready when the Tzaddik died to simply go their separate ways. And so the question of succession arose. And when the question of succession arose, the question was, who should be the next Rebbe? And there were a whole variety of possibilities. One possibility was that the successor should be the premier student, the closest disciple of the Rebbe. That, after all, is what happened when the Baal Shem Tov passed away. The Baal Shem Tov's son was not the person that took over from the Rebbe but rather his primary disciples did. And so there was a question between disciple or closest and best student on the one hand or blood or family member on the other hand. And ultimately, the decision went in favor of what do you think? Family member, why did it go in the choice family member? Well, think about it, and here's where the women come in. When a Rebbe dies, you know, when a Rebbe has established himself in a court, it's not just he who lives for and off his Hasidim, it's his entire family who lives off and for his Hasidim. And if, when the Rebbe passes from the scene, the next leader is not a member of that family, but the closest disciple or the greatest student. What happens to the family 
when the Rebbe is gone and the new Rebbe comes to power, they're out of the picture. They're nobody. They're has-beens. So it was in great interest of the family to establish the principle, and of course, for the father himself also to establish the principle that there is something in the charisma that isn't just based on my learning or based on my achievements, but there's something inherent in the blood. There's something inherent in the family. And so when I have passed from the scene, that something is still there in my family. And so when the next Rebbe is the son of the previous Rebbe, what happens to the widow or what I call the Dowager Rebbetson? She's not just a widow anymore. What is she? She's the mother of the new Rebbe, and the mother of the new Rebbe has a power even greater than the wife of the new Rebbe, as you can imagine. So ultimately, the family interests predominated. And we can see this. We don't have the time now to go into all of the details of how this was worked out. And it didn't go smoothly at first. And there were arguments and divisions over the question of succession. But ultimately, it became either the son or the son-in-law because the assumption was that there is something in what we might call the royal seed, that the seed that when the Rebbe had relations with his wife and conceived of that child, it wasn't just a normal conception. It was something that shook the heavens. Now, many people have that experience during conception. <laughs> <clears throat> but here, it carried a whole different kind of meaning. So the son, or if there were no sons, the son-in-law, because that still had the Zerakodesh, the holy seed, through the daughter. But of course, when it was the son-in-law, it created some difficulties because what would be the difficulty with the son-in-law? The mother-in-law, right. The Dowager Rebbitson is now the mother-in-law. And you can imagine the tensions that exist in that, particularly if the son-in-law comes from a different country, a different kind of Hasidism, a different branch uh, of the family, and although there was a great deal of effort to create these matches made in heaven, as you might say, uh, for Hasidic uh, um, uh, succession, there were uh, tensions as well. And of course, in addition to all of that was, there were often more than one son. And when it became, when Hasidism became part of what we would today call the Orthodox or even the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi world, when it ceased being connected to the larger Jewish community in ways it had been at the beginning, which made it possible for sons and, and sons-in-law of a Rebbe perhaps to do things outside the orbit of Hasidism, today you have lots of children because this world is a world where where having lots of children is an important feature of their lives, the question becomes, do you want all of your children in the family business? Uh, 
How do you have all of your children in the family business when there can only be one Rebbe? One other point, just as a sort of introduction to the stories that I'm going to tell you today, and that is, <clears throat> in a way, much of this was changed by the profound transformation through which Jewry went in the last generation. By and large, as I mentioned before, Rebbes traveled throughout Eastern Europe, and ultimately, they would become associated with a particular town or village, and they became known by the name of that village. So the Rebbe of Satumare became the Satma Rebbe, and the Rebbe of Bobova uh, in Poland became the Bobova Rebbe, and the Rebbe of Lubavitch in uh, Lithuania, uh, or uh, White Russia, Bielorussia, became the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and so on. Now, these names, uh, they didn't really have very much significance in the beginning, the importance of the, uh, the, the, the status, you might say, of those place names came from the Rebbes who inhabited those towns and whose reputation put those towns on the map, as we might say. But after the Holocaust, many of those towns were bathed in what we might call a kind of sacred nostalgia. That is, they were a little bit like before the advent of Uber, having a taxi medallion in the city of New York. <laughs> There's a limited number of those, and so the value of them became higher and higher and higher. So that when we reach the 20th century, the post-Holocaust world, and we have a Hasidic world with many sons, many children, and each one wants his son or sons-in-law in the family business, they can't create new names. So you can't say to all of the sons of the Baba Varebbe, well, if you have several sons, we'll put one in one town and one in another town, and this one will be called uh, the, the Rebbe of Hampstead, and this one will be called the Rebbe of uh, Irvine. And No, you can't do that. There's only one name, and so the competition for these limited numbers of positions created all kinds of tensions uh, within the family. And those are the tensions that I'm going to talk about today. So let me just sort of recap before we move into the stories. One is that the question of succession ultimately, after a lot of back and forth historically, devolved into you have to be part of the blood relationships. A son, a son-in-law, occasionally a brother, in order to be a successor. So important did this become that, in fact, in some cases where a Rebbe died young and his children were minors, there were cases where the minor child, who knew nothing, a 12-year-old, what was called a Yanuka, became the Rebbe over a disciple who knew much more, who might have even have been his teacher. Because when the Yanuka is the Rebbe, of course, the family's still in control. And uh, we talked about the Dowager Rebbitson. Well, there's nothing more powerful than having your son, who's a minor, be the head, be this intermediary between the Hasidim and God, and you're his mother. <clears throat> so the family interests really predominated. 
The second was the issue of charisma. Yes, it's true that to be a Rebbe in the first instance, you had to have charisma. And what is charisma? Charisma is this unusual, it's really, it's, it's more than having a good haircut. Today we use charisma to talk about people who are handsome, but that's not what we mean when we say charisma. Charisma are people who have a kind of power. The, the charismatic leader can say, uh, facts are su such and such, but I say unto you, and you're ready to follow that person. Charisma is this extraordinary power that someone has that can persuade people that he has a je ne sais quoi, something I cannot put my hands on that makes him be able to create this connection to God between God and people whose blessings mean something. So the original Rebbes had charisma, but what about the successors? Well, they had what we would call charisma of office. Just as once you become the Rebbe, people look at you differently. And yet, at the beginning, when there's a new Rebbe and there are still those older Hasidim around who remember him in short pants, it's hard for them to look upon him as having these extraordinary powers. But what happens over time? They die, he gets older, and charisma of office turns into real charisma. Over time, everything changes. So when conflict uh, breaks out among different successors, the question is, how is that conflict going to be resolved? And how do we know which of the ones who are vying for the position, which of the sons or son-in-laws, sons-in-law, are the true Rebbe? Of course, there's only one way that would be ideal. What would be the ideal form of succession? Well, we have it when you look in the Bible, at the end of the Bible. How does the succession move from that first Rebbe, Moshe Rabbeinu? How does it move to his successor? Who's the successor to Moses? Joshua. Joshua. How do we know it's going to be Joshua? God says so, and Moses says so. And he says, this is the man who's going to follow in my footsteps. And there's no debate. No one said, well, what about Kalev? And what about this guy? And what about... No. Everybody else is gone, and the succession is clear. So the best possibility is when the Rebbe says, this is going to be my successor. On the other hand, Rebbes don't like to talk about their demise. They don't like to talk about what happens after me. In many cases, they don't want to think about an after me, and their Hasidim don't want to think about an after me. And in fact, when there is no clear successor, what do they end up talking about? The Mashiach, the Messiah. Because when there is no clear successor, there's only one solution, the end of history. In fact, Hasidim don't need a Messiah because they have a Rebbe, and the Rebbe can do anything that a Messiah can do, and he does it for his Hasidim. But when they don't have a clear successor, when they don't see what's on the horizon, then they need Mashiach, and they talk about, we want Mashiach, and we need Mashiach, and Mashiach is coming. Well, keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to that in a minute. So, <clears throat> we're going to talk about three kinds of succession. And that is really how I've organized my book. And the three kinds of succession, 
are one hand a case where there are too few successors. That is, you have a Rebbe who doesn't seem to have too many children. A Rebbe maybe who has only one daughter and there's only one son-in-law. And what, if hap what happens if that son-in-law is not an appropriate successor? What happens when there are too few successors? Or where they run out of successors. Everyone dies. Or those who didn't die left Hasidism. What happens when there are too few successors? And we're going to talk about two cases, or I talk about two cases where there were too few successors. One is the Rebbe of Munkach, who I'll talk about in a second, and the other is the Rebbe of Bian or Boyan, who I'll also talk about. The second set of cases are where there are too many successors, too many sons who want the job. What do you do in that case? And those two cases we're going to talk about are one, the Baba for Hasidim, the second largest group of Hasidim in America, and the Satmar Hasidim, the largest group of Hasidim in America. There are today two Baba Rebbes, and there are today two Satmar Rebbes. <coughs> and they all have the same name. <laughs> and then there is the third possibility. The third possibility, what could be the third possibility? One too few, one too many. One who says we don't need a successor because we don't think our man ever died. <clears throat> and we know who that is. And it coincides with everything that I talked about with regard to uh, the idea of uh, the Messiah. So can we go to the first slide? So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the Munkacher Rebbe. And that's the man that you see here in the center. But before I talk about the Munkacher Rebbe, I'll just give you a little quick look at all of these people. Now, why do I have a picture here of the Munkacher Rebbe with uh, former Mayor Bloomberg of New York? <clears throat> and you're going to see these Rebbes. These Rebbes have a power in the modern world above and beyond any kind of power they have only for their Hasidim because they have an iconic power. And ironically, you know, when politicians want your votes, they don't get a picture with one of you people because it's hard to tell that you're Jewish. Don't take this personally because we all look like everyone else. That's the way American Jewry appears. But when they get a picture with a Hasidic Rebbe, that is a way of saying, we're for the Jews. We're with you. Now, they don't often understand the differences and sometimes they end up going to the wrong guy. <laughs> and what the nature of their conversation is, we don't know. But if you Google presidents and rabbis, you'll see a lot of Lubavitcher rabbis there, a lot of Lubavitcher Hasidim. You'll see a lot of Hasidic, and you'll see that a Hasidic rabbis, and you'll see that with a whole variety of leaders. Let's just look at a couple more of these slides. So here you have the Munkacher Rebbe. Here you have one of the two uh, Satma Rebbes with Governor Cuomo. Another, uh, you have one of the Bubba Varebas with former Governor Pataki of New York. Now, why are these all New York governors? Well, <clears throat> you will see pictures of Governor Schwarzenegger as well uh, with uh, Rabbi Kunin of uh, Lubavitch uh, in LA. Uh, can we go to the next slide? Uh, here you will see uh, President, you remember McGovern? 
<laughs> yes, it didn't help him to go uh, <coughs> to the Baba Vareba, but he, even he, went to the Baba Vareba. Uh, and now I want to talk a little bit about Munkach. So Munkach is a story, it's an extraordinary story. I can't go through all the details, but let me just give you the quick outlines of the community. One of the most important Rebbes in what today we would call Hungary, <clears throat> you have to understand that the borders, the national borders of many of these uh, countries changed in the course of the last 150, 200 years. The most famous, one of the most famous Rebbes in Eastern Europe was a man known as the Minchas Elazar. And one of the ways in which Rebbes were known, as I said, is through the villages or the towns where they were the preeminent rabbi. But they also were known by a book that they had written. And this book was called the Minchas Elezer. This was Chaim Shapiro of Munkach. He was an extraordinarily charismatic figure, powerful rabbi. Uh, some of you may have seen, there's a famous uh, um, uh, documentary about Hasidism in America, and in that documentary, there's this one scene in black and white where there's a Rebbe speaking in Yiddish, and he's warning the Jews of America, if you will observe Shabbat, he doesn't say Shabbat, Shabbos, <clears throat> then everything will be all right, but if not, things will go badly for you. That was the Munkacha Rebbe, that was the Minchas Elaza. And he was an extraordinarily powerful figure, and many Hasidim, one of the most powerful Rebbes of Central Europe of his time. And he, he had no children, no children. And his Hasidim were worried, what will the future bring? But at a certain point, they said, Rebbe, you have no children, you have to divorce your wife, and you have to marry again. Because obviously the problem could never be the Rebbe's problem. The Rebbe is an extraordinary figure. So with tears in their eyes, both of them divorced, and it was a very difficult uh, experience for both of them. And he remarried. And again, no children. But finally, one daughter. And he doted on this daughter. He loved this daughter. Uh, the daughter joined him at the table when he was having a tish, which was unusual because the women weren't supposed to be praying or eating with the men. And his Hasidim were upset about it. He said, that's okay. If she's not at the table, I won't be at the table. So they agreed to allow her to be at this table. And ultimately, she married. Uh, and <clears throat> her wedding uh, was an event like a royal wedding in... Uh, in uh, in Hungary, no, not in Hungary, in Hungary, in Hungary, in this town of Munkac. And uh, you too, if you, if you uh, Google this and you'll find on YouTube, there are a lot of films of this event. And she married a young man uh, from Poland who was the scion of a Polish Hasidic family. Uh, his name, uh, he, he was called Reboruch Rabinovich. We go to the next slide. I think it's in the next slide. For some reason, these slides seem to be, they're not in focus. All right. So she married a man, Baruch Rabinovich, on the right side. And uh, they were betrothed when both of them were very young. And, and for 
the Minchas Elazar, this young man was the son he always wanted. And he really adopted him in many ways. They traveled to Israel together when he was 12 years old. And everyone knew that the next Rebbe of Munkach would have to be Baruch Rabinovich. Now, again, keep in mind something that I told you beforehand, that he would be a son-in-law, so this would not necessarily go smoothly, but as smoothly as it could go, it would go. When the Minchas Elazar died in that previous slide, as you saw, <clears throat> the funeral was a great tragedy. He died of cancer. He died relatively young. And um, Baruch Rabinovich became, in his early 20s, became the next Rebbe of Munkach. And it was a really remarkable event. And at first, everything seemed to go fairly smoothly, although the fact that he was from Poland, and Poland was viewed as being more open than the Hasidism of Hungary from which Munkacz was forged. And there were some tensions with the uh, Dowager Rebetzin, but nevertheless, Baruch Rabinovich was, there was no question he was going to be the successor. But we're now talking about the eve of the Holocaust. And very soon, as the Nazis began to march through Europe, uh, many of the countries, including the area that Munkach was in, f were forced to expel foreign nationals, and he was from Poland. And so he and his son, his oldest son, were expelled, and they began to run away. They ran away to avoid being taken by the Nazis and put into what would ultimately be a death camp. There's many, many more details in the story. I'm not going to go through all of them. But in the end, he came back. Baruchel came back. He managed to come. They moved the court from Munkach. They moved it to Budapest. And in Budapest, on the eve of the war, he gathered a huge crowd of Hasidim and others and said, listen, there's no future here. You have to leave. And they said, no, we can't leave. And he said, you have to leave. There is no future. And he did something that no one would have believed that a Munkach Rebbe would do. And here I have to step back a bit, because in Munkach, one of the things that the Minchas Elazar, his predecessor, was known for was his rabid anti-Zionism. Why were they anti-Zionist? For all the reasons that many of the Hasidic world, of the ultra-Orthodox world, were anti-Zionist. They believed that Zion was a rebellion against God, that it was not the role of Jews, and certainly not secular Jews and Zionist Jews, to end the exile. The Jews had been put in the exile because of our sins. We've been exiled from our land. We're not supposed to go back until God takes us back. But Baruch Rabinovich was going back and he was going back to the Zionist entity. He came to Palestine with his wife who was by then quite sick. He had four children his oldest son, who had never really been right after that run from the Nazis, 
and uh, three other children. And on the way, even though the doctors had warned her against it, she delivered a, another child, a little girl, who was born in Istanbul, on Constantinople, as it was then called, on the way to Palestine. And they arrived in Palestine, and within the year, uh, his wife had passed away, and he was there with small children, trying to reestablish himself, take care of the children, and he was not able to reestablish himself. And he was in Palestine and absolutely convinced that the people who, left be, who were left behind had made a mistake, and he was right. They'd made a terrible mistake. And his mother-in-law was perished, as did many of the Hasidim of Munkach. And at this point, Baruchel becomes a Zionist. And he wants to become part of the rabbinate in this Zionist entity. But all those Zionists remembered his father-in-law, his anti-Zionism in Hungary, and they said, you want to be a rabbi in the Zionist entity? No. And so he was caught. He had small children, no following, no possessions, no nothing, no wife. He married his nanny, who was not Hasidic, and they moved to Brazil, where he became the chief rabbi of Sao Paulo. But becoming the chief rabbi of Sao Paulo is becoming the only rabbi in Sao Paulo. <laughs> and he really transformed himself. He became an intellectual. And in the end, he abdicated his role as rebbe. He stopped being the rebbe of Munkach. Years passed, and the Munkachar Hasidim, a few have straggled and reconstitute themselves after the war, some in Palestine, more in New York, and they need a Rebbe. But where are they going to find a Rebbe? Their Rebbe, they have now two Rebbes. One, Alava Shalom, may rest in peace, the Minchas Elazar, and the other one, Yemach Shemov Zichro. We can't, we don't want to know anything of him because he's a Zionist and he left and is in Brazil. And his children, and he married a woman that's not Hasidic. And he drives a car and he fixes the car and he has a dog. <laughs> he has the encyclopedia on his shelves. He wears a watch on his hand. He wears a tie. He wants a job in the Zionist state. And his, sin, his sons are going to the public schools. And in the public schools in Brazil, what's on the walls? A cross. And in fact, although there were a number of people who came through Brazil and asked the chief rabbi to help him raise funds for their yeshiva institutions, when they came there and they saw these children who were just... They didn't know anything. They didn't know anything Jewishly. And they couldn't believe the grandchildren of the Minchas Elazar, these people, they're speaking Portuguese, they're going to public schools. This cannot be. And they persuaded him to send his children to yeshivas in America, to the Tells Yeshiva. 
which is not a Hasidic yeshiva. And they come to the Tel's yeshiva, and the Munkacher, uh, the, the former Gabai, the former assistant of Rebarachel and the Minchas Alaza before him, are now in America, and they decide they're going to come to these boys, and they're going to go to the second oldest one, the one named Chaim Elazar, who had the same name as his grandfather, and say, we want to make you the Rebbe. And Chaim Elazar says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I see how you've treated my father. I'm not interested in that. And so they go to his younger brother, Moshe Leib, and they say, we want to make you the Rebbe. He's a young boy. He's not sure. He's in Tel's yeshiva. He comes for the weekends to New York to his aunt and uncle. He loves watching television there. He's a big fan of Perry Mason. <laughs> and they say, we want you to be the Munkacher Rebbe. He doesn't know what to do. And on the way, he's one day, he's while he's considering this, he's walking across the campus at Tell's, and he runs into one of the men working there, and he looks at these boys who are wearing their T-shirts, and he says, why are you wearing T-shirts? When I was a boy in yeshiva, the boys who were studying Torah didn't dress in T-shirts. And they said to him, where were you, where were you as a boy? He said, I was in Munkach. And when Moshe Leib hears this, he thinks it's a sign from God. And he tells the people from Munkach who have been asking him if he's willing to become a Rebbe. And he says, yes, I am. But his father is not happy with this idea. His father says, at least go to college first. If you go to college, you'll have a profession. And if it doesn't work out, you don't have to be a Rebbe. <laughs> to which Moshe Leib says to him, if I go to college, I'll never be a Rebbe. I can't be a Rebbe. And ultimately, however, Moshe Leib does become the Rebbe. And now, at the wedding, which is going to be the day of his coronation, Moshe Leib, his father comes to the wedding, and it is Moshe Leib, his father, the former Munkach Rebbe, all the Munkach Hasidim. It is a moment that is extraordinarily freighted with meaning and with all kinds of tension. Because you have a son, normally when a son is crowned the Rebbe, where is his father? And here his father is there, present at the coronation. I'm not going to tell you what happened. <laughs> I'll have to read the book. <clears throat> but it is an extraordinary scene and an extraordinary relationship that evolves. And it takes a long time to transform Moshe Leib from being a young boy growing up in Brazil to being taught in a non-Hasidic yeshiva like Tells in Cleveland, to transform him into a Rebbe who his Hasidim have to believe is an intermediary between him and God. There's a long road that he has to pass before he gets to sit there talking to Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> All right, let's talk about 
our next case. Uh, this is uh, no, this is still uh, uh, Moshe Leib. This is the 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 Munkacher Rebbe today, the man in the center, and uh, this is him on the cover of the book. <clears throat> the next one is the case of the Rebbe of Bian. I don't know how much time I have. Let me just. You're okay. I'm okay. Okay. So let me just, I'm not going to be able to tell you about all of these stories, but I can assure you each one of them is extraordinary. The Rebbe Biyan, they, uh, the Biyana Rebbe, they come from really the, one of the most important um, dynasties, we could call it, of Hasidism, originally from the Ruzhin dynasty. And the Biyana Rebbe, there were many Rebbes in that dynasty, and the Biana was really the youngest of many sons. And in those days in Europe, it was clear you could get a title by going to another village and establishing a following. And he went to the town of Biana and became, by virtue of that, the Biana Rebbe. And, of course, uh, life in Europe was going through lots of transformations between the Soviet Revolution the Holocaust, migration, the changing nature of European Jewry. And some of these Rebbes were looking for someplace else to go. And the Biana Rebbe was persuaded by one of his cousins that the place for him to go was New York. Many of the Rebbes who came to New York were deeply, deeply disappointed in the beginning. They believed, as they had been told, that America was the Trefa Medina, that the <laughs> land of promise was not a real promise, that they shouldn't go to the promised land and they shouldn't go to the land of promise, that the promised land was the Zionist entity that was a heresy, and the land of promise, Jews might survive, but Judaism would not. And so they shouldn't go. And of course, we know that that uh, advice was dead wrong because Hasidism has never done better in both of those places. And had they come sooner, <clears throat> many more would have been saved. And we know that per capita, uh, uh, as, a, as a proportion of their population, Hasidim took one of the biggest hits. They were really decimated in Europe because they were easy to pick out and they hadn't left. But the Boyana Rebbe came to the Lower East Side. And after some back and forth, he managed to establish himself on the Lower East Side and he was a very open Rebbe. He was very well liked, he had a small shtibel, but in, um, in America, many of the people who went to Hasidic, what were then called shtiblach, a little one-room synagogue, the court of the Rebbe wasn't as grand as it might be today, or and certainly as it was in Europe. They went there, but many of them went because they went for nostalgic reasons. <clears throat> they liked the sound of the prayer that reminded them back home, but they weren't really Hasidim. And the Bayana Rebbe was really successful in establishing that kind of a following. And his children took advantage of America. They lived the American dream. They went to university. They learned professions. And in fact, uh, when it came time to think about the succession to the Bayana Rebbe, most of his children weren't interested. They had professions, other professions. And one by one, when, after the Biyana Rebbe first suffered a stroke and then passed away, there was no clear successor. There was nobody in line to take the job next. 
They went to one son. No, he was already involved in, he was an accountant. Another one had another profession. Finally, they came to the daughter. And the daughter was married to a professor. And the professor, by the name of uh, uh, Breyer, he was a professor and a psychologist. He was a professor at Yeshiva University and a psychologist and a therapist. And on the weekends, he would dress like a chassid, but he was a professor. <laughs> <clears throat> and though he knew a lot, he wasn't ready to give up his career any more than his brothers-in-law were. And it was difficult for them to imagine him as a chassid. So finally, they decided to go to his children. And they went to his oldest son, meaning the grandson of the previous Biana Rebbe, and they said, we'd like you to be the Rebbe. And he wasn't sure, but he said, well, I'll, I'll try it. And they sent him to Israel, to the Biana Yeshiva, the original Yeshiva there, and he studied. And for a while, he sort of liked it, but in the end, he said, no, it's not for me. And ultimately, he moved here to California, and he became a rocket scientist. <laughs> so they went to his younger brother, a teenager. And they said to him, all right, Nachum Dov, we want you to try it. And they sent him to the yeshiva, and he felt a kind of connection. And slowly but surely, he developed the persona of a Rebbe. And he was taught what it means to be a Rebbe. And in a way, he, he was very much his father's son, but without that college education. And he became the Rebbe, and that's the man you see at the left. And he became very successful. His following in uh, Jerusalem, he now lives in Jerusalem, is extraordinarily large. But every so often, he runs away from his court. That's a picture of him in one of the synagogues in Jerusalem to where his father and mother used to live when they, went on, when they were on sabbatical in the neighborhood of Rechavia. And he goes sort of incognito. And the way that he has discovered how to become a Rebbe, the process of learning how to be a Rebbe, it's also an extraordinary story. We don't have the times to go, time to go into the details. Let's take to the next case. This is a story of too many successors. One of the most important and popular Rebbes in Poland in the 19th and early 20th century was the Bubba Rebbe. And the Bubba Rebbe was really because Bobov was not so far from Krakow, Bobov was one of the most important and powerful and really uh, successful rabbinic Hasidic groups in Poland. But the second Bobov Rebbe, Ben Sion Halberstam, suddenly found himself, like so many others, on the eve of the Second World War, running for his life. Shortly after September 1939, September 1st, when the war in Poland broke out, he ran with his oldest son, the man you see on the left here, 
Shlomo Halberstam, who became the third uh, Baba Varebbe, they ran for their lives. And they ran to the east, as many, many men in Poland did at that time, because the, uh, the word on the street, the rumors were that the Nazis were going to take the men, the women, uh, the women and the children would be all right, but the men and the older boys would be in danger, so they ran to the east. And he went stop after stop, and of course, the Hasidim, whenever the Baba Varebbe would come to their houses, they said, thank God the Baba Varebbe is here, we're saved. Because as long as the Baba Varebbe is here, we're saved. But of course, the Baba Varebbe knew they weren't saved because he was running for his life. <clears throat> Ultimately, they murdered the Baba Varebbe. The Nazis captured the Baba Varebbe near Lublin and they killed him. They murdered him in a very uh, public way. And his son and his oldest son, Naftali, continued to run. They sh the, the Shlomo Halberstam became the next Baba Varebbe in the middle of the war, but there was no coronation. He had shaved his beard. He had, in fact, he was on the run. And the story of his run with his oldest son was an incredible story. And had we the time, but it's all, you can read about it in the book. It's really an extraordinary story of survival and faith. But when it was all over, he had lost his wife, many of his children, and he ended up in New York, a broken man. He and his son, his oldest son, Naftali, had survived. A couple of his daughters had survived. And he came to New York, and he didn't want any more of this. He moved into Manhattan. But the Baba Verchasidim who had survived came to him and they said, we need you, Rebbe. The fact that you survived means that we survived. And they persuaded him that he needed to become Rebbe again. And so, with difficulty, emotional difficulty, he's very open and kind and really very engaging man, he took on what's called the Rebistva, the, the business of being the Rebbe. And ultimately they moved to Borough Park, but he married again. And when he married again, he had a whole new family, a second family. Happens, happens in all kinds of family. And so in the second family, he had more children. And he had two older sons. One was Naftali, with whom he had gone through the war and who he had struggled hard to keep alive, who was his oldest son. And he had another oldest son from his second family, Bencio, named after his father, his late father, who was also the first son. Now the question was, who would be the Rebbe after Shlomo Halberstam died. And in the early 2000s, when Shlomo Halberstam died, there was no question who would be the next Rebbe. Who would be the next Rebbe? Everyone knew it would be his son, Naftali. However, Naftali had all of the years that his father had been Rebbe in America, he had really been a very humble fellow. He was sort of an administrator. He would hang out in the base medrash and talk to the people. He didn't have that larger than life charisma. He was not, 
he did not have the same power. You know, it's very hard when you've been number two all along to rise to number one. Plus, he was already a man in his 70s with a bad case of Parkinson's. And so when he came, usually when there is a succession, you know, one of the things that has made Hasidic life so much more complex in America and in general in the 21st century, in the 20th century, is people live longer. There's good health care. There are no more pogroms. For the most part, Jews are not being killed in the streets. And very often, some of the Rebbes live too long. They get sick. And so it had been like five or six years before Rabbi the third uh, Baba Vareva, Shlomo Albastam, had died. And that was a period that was very difficult for the Baba Verchasidim. They were growing by leaps and bounds, but they had a Rebbe who was really a broken man. And now they had a new Rebbe, and he was equally broken. And he had two daughters and two sons-in-law. And his wife was thinking, he's not going to live forever. He's already a sick man. When he dies, if his half-brother, Ben Sion, becomes the Baba Varebbe, what happens to us? Where are we? What are we going to do? The same problems that we talked about that were always there in succession. And during that five-year period, I'm going to have to stop. <clears throat> I'll just tell you very briefly, during that five-year period, it was his sons-in-law who really acted to support and sustain Rabbi Naftali in his sickness, and they acted in, in place of the Rebbe. And there were many people who believed, well... Ben Sion has to step forward and take his position, but Ben Sion said, I'm not going to step forward as long as my brother is in the position. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to try to grab the throne. And when, at last, five years later, Naftali died, suddenly a war broke out in Babov between the people who wanted Ben Sion, who thought he was going to be the next Rebbe, the half-brother of Naftali, and those who said, no, once the crown went to Naftali, it stays in his family and one of his sons-in-law. We just go to the next slide for a second. <clears throat> and the choice became between the son-in-law on the right, Rabbi Mordechai Unger, and Ben Sion Halberstam on the left. What you see in that picture of Ben Sion Halberstam on the left is when a Rebbe is finally selected as the, as the Rebbe, all of the Hasidim bring up and they give him notes, prayers, pidyonos. And the story of that, that difficulty, that rebellion, that fight, there are now two Bobovs, Bobov 45, meaning they're on 45th Street, and Bobov, sometimes called 48, they're on 48th Street. A similar story happens with Satmar, we're out of luck and out of time. And, uh, and of I'll course, you, you are granted extra time. <laughs> I can't tell you the whole story. And I want to tell you, of course, also about Lubavitch and how, to, how yeah. Lubavitch has uh, done its story. So uh, Ben Sion, uh, there's been a there been there's been a court case. There's been all kinds of fighting. There's been violent violence, beatings, all kinds of things. It really is a story 
that deserves more than two minutes. I can't tell you more about it. I'll tell you very briefly with Satma, we have a similar problem. The Satma Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Yoelish Teitelbaum, is a man who was forged in conflict. That's the man you see at the left. He had three daughters, all of them predeceased him. No grandchildren. A man who really sort of created the mold of what it means to be Hasidic in America, known for his rabid anti-Zionism and for his insistence on not changing anything, fighting not only against Israel, but against any kind of assimilation in America. Creates his own little village in the north called Kiryas Yoel, where there is no separation between religion and state because what the Rebbe says is the law. And although in America anybody can live wherever they want to, if you decided to buy a house in Kiryas Joel, you would discover that the line between religion and state is quite blurry there and not anybody can live uh, in Kiryas Joel. And of course their primary area is in Williamsburg. He had one nephew and he had... He had no children who, uh, as I say, uh, by the time he died, he had remarried because his first wife died. And his Hasidim said, marry a woman who has some children and will know that she's fertile. And he married a woman half his age with no children. And when he died, uh, for the five or six years before he died, his uh, uh, Rebetzin, uh, Fega, essentially became the closest thing to a woman Rebbe in America. She ran the court. He had had a stroke. He was unable to speak. She acted on his behalf, and she developed the idea that even when he died, she would put some straw man in, in his place, and she would run the court from his gravesite. She would go and she would talk to him at his grave, just as the Lubavitcher would talk to his predecessor at the grave, <clears throat> and just she would be the Rebbe. But even that powerful Rebbetzin, who would be able to stand in the middle of the men's section and give brachot, and they would kiss her hand and distribute money. But when push came to shove, they said, you can't be the Rebbe. And although some remained with her, the so-called B'nai Yoel, his nephew, a man by the name of Moshe Teitelbaum, who you see on the right, who ultimately became his successor. The history of how Satmar grew and the relationship between that Teitelbaum and the other Teitelbaum family, a fascinating story we don't have time to get into. Make a long story short, Moshe Teitelbaum became the Rebbe, and he had several sons. And he too grew too old to be able to run his court. And for many years, if you go to the next slide, <clears throat> he had two sons, Zalman and Aaron Teitelbaum. Uh, Aaron, the man on the right, was the older son. And he set him up as being the kind of crown prince in Kiryas Yoel. But after a while, people thought he's a little too high-handed. He feels too much power. And many of the people who had been against his father becoming the Rebbe now were part, and the whole 
the whole administrative staff around Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum said, well, we need somebody who will be on our side. So they brought a younger brother who had been in exile in Israel and brought him back to Williamsburg, Zalman, and made him the assistant <coughs> to his father. And Zalman proved to be much more popular, much less high-handed, much, much less standoffish. And when finally Moshe died, the Zalis, who supported Zalman, and the Aronis, who support Aaron, broke apart, and they've created two Satmar courts. Now you might say that's terrible, but in fact it's proved very successful for them because there's nothing like competition to make them grow. Each side has to prove to the other that they're more powerful. Okay, we're out of time. The, the, story, the story of Chabad, you all know, he's not dead, he's just out there. He, well, it's all in the book, I guarantee you. It's all there. We have time for some uh, questions and answers. I'm sorry we ran out of time. It is a long story. It is cinematic. These are characters who are larger than life. And if you want to understand how they could appeal to people, you need to read the stories of their lives. Yes, sir. So your story is the story of uh, the Rebbe. The succession. What do you make of Breslov? So uh, Breslov is a, is, is a little bit similar to the story of Lubavitch. That is... A, a, a group of Hasidim, for those of you not familiar with Breslov. Breslov had only one Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who was the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. And when he died, they took his chair, broke it into a hundred pieces, and they said, we'll bring it back, and we'll all put it together in the Holy Land, and he will continue to be our Rebbe. And they are very messianic. Excuse me, they were very messianic. And as, as I said initially... When there isn't a successor, when there isn't a clear successor, the Hasidim tend to become very messianic as they are with Chabad and as they are with, uh, with Breslov. Breslov, actually, most of the Breslov or Hasidim are, are um, they're self-made. They're, they don't have a Hasidic background. There are very few multi-generational Breslov or Hasidim, unlike Lubavitch. Lubavitch has much more of a history. But Lubavitch, as we all know, is a movement uh, most of whose followers are neither Hasidim nor likely to be, nor even Orthodox. If you go to a Chabad house, most of the people in there aren't Chabad. You know, they're sort of fellow travelers. Uh, and Chabad changed the whole model of what it means to be a Hasid, what the relationship to the Rebbe would be. And uh, he himself was a transformative figure. But again, I've written two books about that, so I, I don't feel so bad that I haven't been able to cover all that subject because you can read... The first book, which is called The Rebbe, The Life and the Afterlife of Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and the, this book, which uh, one of the chapters is about Chabad, because it's not just about Menachem Mendel. The story of Chabad is, is so complex that um, there's been many Chabad Rebbes. It's not only Lubavitch. And uh, it is a messianic movement from the get-go. But again, we're out of time to talk about that. Yes? Please repeat the question. Who will be around in 50 years? For sure, Satmer. For sure, Bobov. How many? Can you give people an idea of how many Satmer, how many Bobov? Yeah, many so Satmer is the largest Hasidic group in America. There's about uh, 250,000 of them. 
And remember, there's two, so they're constantly in competition to see who's more powerful, who's more influential. Is that worldwide or just America? Mm -hmm. It's pretty much worldwide. They're not very big in Israel. They have some in, in, in Canada, they have some out here uh, in LA, but it's primarily in New York. They, they, they're growing in, in part. They, they, they've just taken over another village in the, in the Catskills. A very interesting story. We don't have time to go into it here. Uh, the Bubbavers uh, are about uh, 150,000, maybe a little less, a little more. The numbers keep changing. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, just in, if you look at the census, for example, very hard to know numbers, but if you look at the census, uh, so Kiryas Joel is an incorporated village, soon to be a town, in New York, and so the census counts them. They are about, uh, grow by about 50% in every five years, so the numbers are changing as we speak. They have large families and uh, they make it very hard to drop out, although you hear more and more about dropouts. The fact of the matter is that the, the large majority of them do not drop out. So uh, the numbers are, you know, they're going to be around 50 years. I'm not sure about everybody else. How many Chabad? How many Chabad? Chabad is a much smaller group. Because really? as I say, uh, you hear about Chabad because they're, they, they come in contact with you. But Chabad, if you look at uh, Crown Heights, which is their, their base of operations, there's only about maybe 10,000 there. And the number of shluchim or emissaries is about 4,000. If you multiply that, um, they all have, let's say, five or six kids. So uh, the numbers are, are, are relatively small, but Chabad travels. And Chabad is in contact. Uh, with people, but Chabad is is uh, not at all. I mean, it's not at all like all the other Hasidic groups. So just What's those two? No, there's many. Uh, there's no, no, that will be that will persist. persist. No, no, the law persists. I think Hasidic groups, uh, Ger Hasidim, for example, it's the largest group in, in Israel, maybe in the world. They're not going to disappear at all. Faith has a question. What is the title of this? Who will lead us? It's University of California Press, a local local publisher. Thank you. The story of five Hasidic dynasties in America. What, so why 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 are Satmar succeeding, Gare succeeding, Bober? Why are they succeeding as opposed to other Hasidim or other? Well, partly it is that they have two things. How do you keep people in a group with in an open society where they could leave anytime they wanted to? Well, one thing is you guarantee that they don't have the skills to leave. So they go to their own schools, they, English for them is the second language, uh, their curriculum in their schools is very limited, so they don't necessarily have the skills to leave. The second thing you do is you demonize the outside world. You don't want to be like those people. So if you do those two things, you don't give them the skills to leave, uh, and you also give them a sense of solidarity. It's a team sport. And uh, particularly in Satmar, you know, you're competing against Satmar itself. And you have a whole series of enemies. Uh, that's a great, uh, you know, the President of the United States is using that kind of uh, yeah. uh, uh, device. A <laughs> few yes. last questions. Okay. Do any of these groups, for lack of a better term, attract uh, many converts? Converts from Judaism or converts or from to... anyone? Well, Chabad is all about conversion. Right. But Chabad, Chabad is... I think you need to understand one thing about Chabad. Chabad, when, when uh, Rabbi Horikov was the uh, secretary of the late uh, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, the so-called late, I guess you have to say, Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
when he was asked how many Lubavitch Hasidim are there in the world, he said, how many Jews are there in the world? In other words, his answer was, there's no difference between Chabad and Jews. So uh, one of Chabad's, uh, let's say, goals is to create a whole bunch of people who think there's no difference between Chabad and what Judaism wants. And as I said, most of Chabad's followers, of course, are not Chabad Hasidim. They don't become Chabad Hasidim. They don't even become Orthodox. Chabad is not really interested in collecting Jews as much as they are interested in collecting mitzvahs. They will stop you on the street, excuse me, are you Jewish? And they'll ask you to do something Jewish in public. What could be more public than putting on tefillin in public? I mean, really. Nobody else is doing that. That's right. <laughs> so they believe that if you collect enough mitzvahs, if Jews do mitzvahs, then at a certain point that will tip the balance. And when there are more mitzvahs in the world than there are avirot, then Mashiach will come and then, that, then, they go, then they can go home. They don't have to be in all of these places in the far corners of the, of the world. It's a whole messianic movement. And again, there's much to be read about Chabad, but that would have to be a whole other lecture. But I think the question was, if, if, if uh, they, they wanted to become a Satmar Chassid, could they walk in and become a Satmar Chassid? You wouldn't have the information to do it. First, you'd have to be able to, uh, you know... Part of what happens when you convert, in general, and you can see this in, in, in any kind of people who convert to Judaism, it's often the children who are the first ones that are really uh, accepted wholeheartedly because the convert is already uh, impure by virtue of what he or she has been beforehand. Conversion is a very complicated business. Uh, and, but uh, Satmar isn't looking for converts. They make their own. You know, they, they produce their own uh, people. Last question, are we done? Okay, thank you so much.